Welcome to GDPR Now. In this episode, we're talking about the B word, yes, Brexit. I've avoided it for months, but we can't avoid it any longer. Luckily, in the studio today, I've got Juana Delea, who is GDPR practice lead for D2 Legal Technology, who's going to come in and explain to us everything, well, what's, how it's going to work, what it's going to look like. So, Juana, welcome. Thank you very much, Mark. Glad to be here. And well, glad to have you. Would you like to tell us a bit about yourself, your background and what, you, what your day-to-day -day activity is? Great. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, so I'm uh, by training a lawyer and I've practiced for around 10 years in the fields of sort of related fields of intellectual property, IT and privacy. Uh, started out in Canada, worked uh, there until about uh, three years ago in both in-house and private practice, always within sort of this little triumvirate that kind of circles around data and technology um, and uh, was lucky enough to come work with uh, D2 Legal Technology uh, almost three years ago now, uh, working on specifically uh, GDPR preparation and uh, GDPR related um, advisory matters with, uh, with a variety of clients in different industries. And I'm currently uh, working with a uh, financial institution, helping them transition and prepare for the B word and the day that it comes in whatever format it does come in. Okay, oh, well, that's, that's interesting. So today we're gonna to assume a hard Brexit. Well, that'd be the primary thing we're, we're talking about. There, there may end up be all sorts of uh, transitional provisions, but yeah. we'll talk about the hard Brexit that we know kind of what the worst case looks like. Exactly, and I mean, most clients are preparing for that. That's the only way you can approach it in the current situation, and it's what I'm, I'm uh, currently working on as well. Um, it's uh, the hard, hard Brexit basically means from the point of view of data protection that the GDPR as it applies to the European Union will not apply in the, in the UK as of basically midnight on the day of, of a hard Brexit. Um, of, at the same time, of course, the new Data Protection Act 2018 will apply, will continue to apply. It is, it mirrors the GDPR. So in, for all intents and purposes and in practice, the standards that UK companies will be held to by the ICO will remain the same. However, there are a number of issues that come out of it from the point of view of data transfers. Um, but can I just stop you there? So just so let, let me get this clear. So from, from uh, B-Day. Yes. Actually, <laughs> that sounds, actually, that's appropriate way to call it. But uh, from B-Day, UK will have vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the European Union the same status as Russia, Nigeria, China, China exactly. all those countries. Exactly. We are kind of total strangers in GDPR terms to them. Yeah, I think the, the, as of B-Day, the UK will have a strange status, actually, in the sense of much more so than China and Russia, etc., which are, it's clear, their laws are very different, completely different standards, completely different things. In, our, in, our, in the UK's case, the fact that the DPA 2018, the Data Protection Act 2018, is a mirror of GDPR will mean that we will have the same standards more or less the principles here in the UK. However, from looking in from the European Union, um, transferring data from the European Union into the UK will indeed have the same, will be seen as the same as transferring to Russia or China, even though really the protections are the same. But as of B-Day, the UK will not have any kind of equivalency decision or any other, um, I guess, status to, to make it equivalent 
formally to what the, the EU um, sort of requires in terms of international data transfer. So it's a, it's a sort of a strange in the middle kind of place. Uh, so so I can, that's what everyone's focusing on. It's the flow of data. That's uh, yeah, the big understood. issue. And then, so, I mean, you and others, a lot of us have been involved in advising American companies, for example. Exactly. Does the GDPR apply to you or not? And then you look at art, Article 3, the GDPR, and, you know, establishment or your targeting or profiling, those tests. So those tests now, so those tests, a UK company after Brexit will have to apply those tests to itself. You'll have the, well, like, there's a UK GDPR and EU GDPR is effectively what they'll be. They'll have to apply EU GDPR and just say, well, actually, am I processing personal data of EU residents? And therefore, does GDPR, EU GDPR have extraterritorial effect on me? in the UK, on my company in the UK. Exactly. So that's one aspect is, is do I have to formally um, abide by and, and meet the standards set by the EU GDPR, let's call it that way, the original GDPR. But secondarily, it's, it's also the fact that am I going to be allowed to, to import that the, the personal data that I might be processing it? Because it's, it's, that's where the key is, is that you... I don't think UK companies will have as much of an issue with the fact that they will have to be subject to the the the, the requirements of the EU GDPR because they will already have to meet those under UK law, under the Data Protection Act 2018. However, where there will be uh, complications is if they are indeed processing that data or accessing that data uh, from a UK location, and when I say data, I mean personal data of EU residents, um, they will not legally and formally be able to do that anymore. So it's, it's as if the borders sort of would be shut. It's, it's a bit equivalent, not quite, but it, it, it might help to think of the questions that came up when the safe harbor uh, rules were uh, invalidated. Uh, the, question, the same questions came up with respect to transfers to the U.S. overnight, what happens? So what what what, are you, what what did happen then for that Schrems one effect? Exactly, Schrems one. Um, it, in practice, not much because transfers had to continue. However, at that time, the one um, the 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 enforcement mechanisms and the enforcement sort of approach of the, the various EU um, enforcement uh, data protection enforcement bodies was not the same. Um, in the con- in the current context, there is a lot more. Um, I guess activity and 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 political will to to look at those transfers to enforce any illegal sort of data transfers. So that is something that UK companies will have to look at, especially where they are based not just simply processing EU residents information, but they have establishments in the EU, yes. which most international companies obviously will that are based in the UK and 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 do business with the EU. Okay, and we're not talking. Here, and let's just keep it really simple. Mm. Uh, let's assume I've got a UK company and I've got a website and I'm selling to people in, in mainland Europe, okay? So we know that I'm targeting people in mainland Europe. I'm collecting their data. There's nothing wrong with that. There's subject to Article 3.2 of GDPR. I just have to comply with GDPR mm-hmm. and assuming, and, I've, and I'm, okay, provided I do, I'm okay. If, however, someone wants to transfer, and this is... Uh, uh, controller to controller transfer, controller to processor transfer from the European Union to the UK, 
then they're going to need some kind of standard contractual clauses or equivalent, as you would if you're transferring to India or somewhere else. Exactly. And that's that's where the issue is up until sort of, as we said, B-Day, uh, that flow of data was free. There was no yeah. problem. There was no issue. That question didn't come up. But as of that date, if there is, uh, if it is a hard Brexit, these companies will all of a sudden find themselves in a sort of a strange legal limbo where their status all of a sudden changes. And yes, they would have to um, implement, if where applicable, standard contractual clauses or any other um, potentially available means of... So of, if they've had binding corporate rules exactly. signed off by the ICO, yeah. will those binding corporate rules then fall away, uh, no longer be valid as, as viewed from the EU perspective? Or are they still... Are they still that, I mean, that should not be the case. The, the question here is, however, how many UK companies would have applied for binding corporate rules, considering that until B-Day, they're within the bubble, in a yeah. sense. They don't need, I mean, uh, American companies, Chinese companies might have actually gone to the trouble. It's not an easy process, right? Yeah. So I think that that mechanism, um, a lot of companies will be hard-pressed to avail themselves of it based on the fact that, A, highly doubtful many of them have taken on to, to do that, to, to kind of uh, obtain those. And number two, if you start doing that now, that takes months. It's yeah, not agreed. an easy process. So what most companies have looked at trying to do is putting in those standard contractual clauses. The question becomes, when you've got a website, how do you do that? It's, it's I guess it's an open question still. Can you include those as part of your sort of standard terms and conditions as part of your, you know, the, the, that you have on your website that govern the transaction that you're doing? And there's still, in my mind at least, a huge question mark as to whether that would be valid because technically those have to be signed. So unless they implement some kind of process where if you, uh, you know, you, 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 by clicking submit is the equivalent of signing such things, then Perhaps, but that hasn't been um, that hasn't been really looked at yet. That hasn't been sort of uh, explored yet. So we've got we've got problems with data transfers. The UK companies, unless they already have a presence in the uh, mainland, let's call it the mainland EU for now. Well, actually, it is the EU. Uh, we'll need an Article Twenty Seven representative exactly, or, or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that won't be a problem for most uh, FCA regulated companies because they've already set up uh, their own. You know, parallel licensing in Lithuania or, exactly. or Ireland, more typically. And most FCA regulated companies will be large enough that they would, by doing business with Europe, have already needed to set up some kind of presence, yeah. as you're saying, just because the main market will inevitably be for most of them Europe or one of the main markets. Okay. In terms of the other, another thing for UK companies, they're not, they will not be able to benefit from the regulatory one-stop shop. Mm -hmm. In the same way, they're probably you know, they're a bit like Americans. They just have yep. to go to whoever happens to be the relevant local uh, local supervisory authority, whether it's yep. the Netherlands or France or Spain, wherever they're operating. They're yeah, operating. Exactly, and so that that will also become an additional administrative burden for a lot. And I actually do think that at this point, not enough companies have actually considered that, what, how, how they might prepare for maintaining the relationships with each of these regulators and each of the countries. Um, so that, that could be at least a secondary question or, or added burden. I think that 
UK companies will have to have to look at. I think most companies right now are really concerned with how do I make sure that the flow of data remains uninterrupted and I don't expose myself to risk of um, basically, you know, <laughs> all of the regulators in the markets where I'm doing business coming after me because I'm I'm transporting and I'm doing the same as I've always done, but now all of a sudden my transfer of data, of personal data to the UK is illegal. Yes, okay. And one of the ways I've seen it done within uh, corporate groups, a large amount of companies, mm. is you do one kind of master agreement and everyone goes around, you know, signing up as kind of framework agreement, master agreement, mm. whatever, whatever, any data is covered by these, yeah. uh, by these provisions. And in terms of then we've got the European Data Protection Board, which is supposed to be kind of the kind of lead, kind of regulator, overseeing, overseeing body, yeah. yeah. Of course, from B-Day, their advice is kind of interesting for the UK. Exactly. But not binding. But not, well, it, it, yeah, it, it was kind of, it might be, well, whether it's binding in the first place, leave that aside. But, but, yeah. <laughs> reduced in persuasiveness, put it that way. Yes, I think that's probably the best way to look at it. I, I would, however, argue that, and from what the ICO has, has said in terms of its policy going forward, I would be very, very surprised if they ignore it or even reduce the persuasiveness. Because as with all kind of aspects of UK-EU cooperation in the future, there's no practical interest in diverging when you know you're still dealing with your biggest market and so i think for at least i know the ico what how, what we've heard and how they've expressed themselves going forward and their position towards brexit is that they will aim to as much as possible align with and um and and not follow but but really take into very strong consideration in order to align with uh, what the the European Data Protection Board's sort of um, approach or... I can, see, I can see the logic of that, but you can also imagine that depends on the political uh, colour of government mm. at that point and will tell the ICO more or less what they have to do or mm -hmm. enact what the ICO has, has to do. I mean, that's definitely a danger, obviously. Um, you know, I guess maybe it's hope spring, springs eternal that the ICO will still remain politically independent, but, you know, I will acknowledge that, of course, that's a possibility. I think that's what their intention is going forward. So it is something to be closely watched. And then the decisions of the European Court of Justice, again, it's a bit like, a bit like the decision being, you know, interesting, possibly persuasive, a bit like decisions of of the Commonwealth are historically. So, you know, if you're in America, if you're at the UK, you might, a judge, you might look at an American decision or an Australian decision, or South African decision on the same point, because it's the same, it's essentially the same point. Yeah, and they might have a good persuasive argument for something that you might adopt, yeah. Uh, and what's happened, and, and there's not a huge amount of them, but it's the, all the case law. So you've got the GDPR, you've got the preceding data protection directive, you've got this a body of European case law. Mm. Is that then, is that somehow imported into the UK GDPR? I mean, I haven't, I've read it, but not that closely. The, mm. the UK DPA is... Uh, yeah, I, I don't believe that the actual decisions are imported, um, but it is, it's it, what, what the, the UK DPA, the 2018 DPA does is basically transfer the provisions as they are yeah. of the GDPR and add sort of some specifications, but especially... But it's, yeah. it's I, I agree with you, but it's kind of odd because all... If you think of a UK mm -hmm. Act, which is a kind of follow-on of an older UK Act, mm -hmm. it always assumes, sometimes it enacts, sometimes it takes the preceding case law 
and converts it into statutory form, uh, sometimes it disapplies mm. preceding case law, but mm. often it runs in parallel with the understanding it will run in parallel or more or less of the same wording's mm. kind of used. With case law. And here it's kind of hanging around, yeah. you know, up in the air. I mean, to my understanding, there is no specific provision that no. says, uh, in, you know, at the very least, and, and in particular in terms of future case law, that it would be taken into account. I don't think that there are any provisions that specifically say how uh, the how UK judges or direct UK judges in any way whether they they can f they should follow ECJ decisions because I don't think that that's within the scope of what Parliament can actually do and so I would be very I think that th that's again another big hole in terms of what judges might be expected to do um, at, on the flip side because there is no specific um, sort of prohibition on, on following such decisions, there might be some potential loopholes for adopting that in the same way as, as you mentioned, judges have the latitude to look at American law, Canadian law, Australian law, based on common law but it, principles. But it definitely won't be binding in the exactly. same way an ECJ decision No, absolutely could be not. Absolutely not. I mean, the, whether the ECJ continues to apply, the ECJ decisions continue to apply in the UK is one of the aspects of the withdrawal agreement and then one of the aspects that's been the most hotly debated, saying, well, no, we once there's a break, there's a break. Um, and so that, all, I think, again, it's another one of the things that will have an effect on how even the DPA is applied going forward. Um, it's an interesting aspect because, of course, the, the purpose of the DPA 2018 is to try to, to align as closely as possible with the GDPR, but from the get-go, you're in a position where you are diverging just because the same case law won't apply in the same way as it will to the EU, EU, EU GDPR. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I, I agree. I think it's going to be quite fascinating. Um, and I have to say, as a lawyer, I feel slightly sorry that you're going to have all these cases which are immediately mm. relevant from this big catchment area. <laughs> we have you know, all the extreme, the, exactly. the big advantage of big catchment areas, it tests, the likelihood of testing things at the extreme is more likely, which is useful mm. for the rest exactly. of the law. Um, and one thing we haven't talked about, which would fix all this, is the UK getting an adequacy decision exactly. from the yeah. European Union. And, and in, in, you know, in practical reality, if you're, you know, we're coming kind of come back down to the practical aspect of everything, that will probably be the first step uh, that any responsible government and any responsible sort of ICO team would, would go for. Um, I think that that would happen. I think the question in a lot of people's minds is not whether that would be, if that would be granted, because I, unless, again, there's very s severe political sort of forces that somehow influence that, there is equivalency, um, at least on, on paper. And it's a question of, well, what happens in between? Again, it's one of those things where it can't be done in a week. It will, you know, be a year or two years, depending on how the, the wheels move. One aspect that could potentially either delay or de derail that, and that's ironically not even connected to anything kind of that companies would necessarily be directly concerned with, is that both the, the sort of the overall European privacy uh, sphere and um, the overall um, sort of Data Protection Act scope, it also concerns um, police powers and surveillance powers, which actually are the only thing in the DPA 2018 that don't specifically align to what the the overall EU um, umbrella. Huge, huge schedules in the act. Exactly. And so, so 
based on that sort of aspect of privacy protection, law enforcement, surveillance, etc., an inadequate decision affecting kind of commercial, the commercial world could be delayed. So again, it's sort of this strange. I've had, it, I've had it. I've heard it put even stronger. Now I can't quite remember happened in Schrems one, but my understanding mm. part of the problem was that the U.S. government had yes. t- too easy access to pers- European personal Absol- data. Right? Absolutely, because of because of the Patriot Act, where which basically exactly. says that um, certain law enforcement agencies basically don't even have to justify, don't even have to tell you, and they will just. Get it. Exactly. The and companies have to hand it over. Okay. And that was the basis actually on which uh, Safe Harbor was struck down because it didn't address that. And, and, and Schrems too is, is proceeding on that same line. And, exactly. and we know that the the UK and the US have a very um, have a history of uh, swapping intelligence information about yeah. people. I suspect exactly. more going one way, going the other, about who actually knows. Nobody knows. Yeah, yeah nobody and knows. And that's the issue. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that would be a and my understanding that that bit of the UK uh, mm. practice has never been examined by the European Union, particularly because the UK has never had needed an adequacy decision before. Exactly. But if that comes around, I mean, if we well, we will need an adequacy decision, and if that comes up, it's going to be. And if the European Union f- feels that we are overly uh, friendly to intelligence services and handling over data, mm. then that may mean that we don't get an adequacy adequacy decision unless we well. That's one possibility, mm. B, unless we find a way to separate the the two the, aspects, the, the, the yeah. commercial and, and the kind of governmental, if I can put it that way. Exactly. I mean, that would entail because technically the the adequacy decision normally does apply to all aspects, public and private. Whether they would be willing to grant one just sort of a limited adequacy decision for commercial data is is again untreaded territory that we can't really make a prediction about so yeah and when you think back to the way gdpr is constructed and how it treats public sector bodies public sector bodies have to have a dpo even if they're tiny they can't use legitimate legitimate interest as a lawful basis exactly right? yep so they are the, i think the transparency um requirements are much more stringent and yeah. much more i guess factually speaking so there are they are held to a sta- higher standard, standard. In a sense. so yeah. you, that that means that would suggest that you're, we're unlikely to be cut or the uk is unlikely to give much slack mm-hmm. in that area yeah but who knows yeah it's it isn't clear i think that's actually one of the aspects that is maybe not discussed as much as it should be. I think a lot of people discussing kind of, again, post-Brexit, post-hard Brexit, kind of data transfer issues, or just generally um, how the, the UK privacy uh, environment will be compared to or, or vis-a-vis the EU, um, they're not looking at this aspect of it and what potential roadblocks that could cause. Because those are the differences. Again, everyone's kind of saying, oh, but what's the problem? DPA 2018, same exactly as the GDPR, yes, in the context of sort of private sector or or sort of non-security, non-law enforcement um, exchange and transfer of data and processing of data. Actually, and that that makes me think of an interesting point. So if you're a UK controller processing European resident data mm-hmm. and in the UK, and at that point the GDPR applies to you, uh, EU GDPR applies to yeah. you. At that point, you, if you were in in a member state, you could use um, one of your lawful bases would be uh, a legal obligation. Mm-hmm. But typically, those legal obligations are legal obligations of states of the member states of the union, right? 
So now, if you're a UK controller outside the U, outside the European Union, but GDPR applies, you don't. It's going to be quite hard to rely on a legal basis if you're not a member state. To say that this is a law in your country and you have to do it, basically, yeah. that would be yeah. exactly. And that's, I mean, that's part of the issue why most likely the U.S. will not get an adequacy decision anytime soon. Um, there's a lot of other issues and a lot of other reasons, but that's also, it's related to that, yeah. And then we flip it the other way around. So we know that at the moment the UK, B-Day happens. Um, I'm not gonna make more any jokes about things being flushed down. I think they're totally appropriate. <laughs> um, uh, B-Day happens, UK is outside European Union. We're not adequate at that point. Uh, Let's flip the mirror around because, of course, one of the, this is a bit like, this is a funny kind of mirrors, looking into mirrors, because you've got the EU GDPR facing after the UK GDPR. So we're now, we'll be saying one thing is transfer of data outside the UK. Are the, mm -hmm. Is the European Union member states, are they adequate for UK personal data being shipped out? Now, has that been discussed particularly by the ICO or we're we just assuming so if, if we have the UK GDPR and basically it says, I'm assuming it, it says that you can't ship data outside the UK unless it's going to in a country, an adequate country with adequate protection or you've got standard clauses in effect or something like that. Mm -hmm. Now, has that been discussed? I haven't followed the ICO's latest statements on that. No, I don't. I think that that's not something that uh, that has been really, at least again, also to my knowledge, that has been at the forefront in any way. I think because it's been overshadowed, unfortunately, by the sort of what do we do about transfers yeah. the other way. Um, but it but is the last bit. I, the last that I read was mm. that this working assumption that, that all European Union states would be uh, adequate, at least on a transitional basis. So exactly. You didn't have that problem. Exactly, and that's that was my understanding. Was that more about well, we adopted the GDPR framework into our law on that premise that we consider it to be adequate. So I think it's again, it's the flip side of the coin where well, I'm recognizing your adequacy, but I understand that you're not going to necessarily automatically recognize mine. So I don't foresee, or at least there hasn't been any discussion about sort of imposing the op sort of uh, a reverse or, or reciprocal requirement for adequacy uh, that has to be formally granted. Um, and but it kind assumption. of it sits and then the trouble with the GDPR, the kind mm -hmm. of, the GDPR has got its extraterritorial provisions. Before we were, we were intraterritorial, now, it's now we're extraterritorial. But equally, when you take the GDPR, make it a UK GDPR, it's got yeah. the same intra-extra. Exactly. So now European Union is extra. So if I'm a French company selling into UK and I've mm -hmm. got no establishment in the UK, I need an Article 27, UK Article 27 representative in the UK. In the UK. I mean, it's going to get really kind of very confusing very quickly. Complicated. And then it also becomes a question, well, are then Canada, who perhaps has an adequacy decision towards the EU, is it going to need a UK adequacy decision to basically continue the same data flows that it was continuing before? Um, how does that basically work? I suspect that the ICA will give everybody, well, and I think I did think I did read mm. that the, but it's probably worth checking that the, that all the existing UK, uh, 
all existing EU adequate, adequate countries, Canada, Argentina, New Zealand, and so on. Will be recognised as such. For UK purposes, yeah. 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 yeah exactly. Otherwise, life just gets too complicated. Yeah. But then again, then extending to the countries that are not, do, do not have an adequacy decision, I guess the same treatment, uh, the UK will continue treating Russia, China, US in the same way as they've been now. So I think... I mean, the main, the key thing I think everyone is more concerned with is UK-EU. Um, it is a good question as to whether um, they would start, the ICO would potentially start requiring adequacy decisions from the EU. But I think it's probably safe to, to say that um, if they are going to be recognizing Canada's adequacy, they will be recognizing EU's adequacy again, unless there are some political issues well, you can, that we, get you can, in the you, way. Yeah, <laughs> you can see we get some of those post-divorce um, um, uh, spats, and we haven't even worked out the prenup. You know, yeah. it's one of those. So, yeah, um, yeah, that could get messy. But let's hope we don't get there. Definitely. Um, okay. Do you? I mean, I think we're com- coming close close to time now, but. When you when you meet your clients and you and of course this is coming up and I understand you know I suspect human nature we want nature uh, and this this uh, podcast has been recorded in London mm. in Canary Wharf and so you know London London as a business is very much typically a Remainer and so every not and not a, and they're not Brexiteers so. Most people in most businesses, I suspect, would have been ignoring the B word, are hoping it goes away. Yes. Right? And now it's the, everyone's going, oh gosh. And it's all kind of looming closer, much, much faster than I expected. Mm-hmm. Generally, what kind of advice, I mean, apart from the fact that it's a rush, right? What kind of advice are you, are you giving your clients and... Uh, and when you give advice, I guess you have to, you know, everyone's got limited resources and you go prioritize, this is number one, this is number two, and this is number three. So what, what kind of advice are you giving people in these situations? I think the situation with, as, as you very rightfully mentioned, with most, uh, if not all, at, at least medium and sort of large enterprises that even have kind of the effects of Brexit on their data protection obligations, even on the radar, um, there are two kind of trends that I can like I can say I've seen. Um, I think people, in the, at least in the last year or six months, have started talking much more about it. Um, there is the resource issue. Um, and one of the roadblocks that they've been hitting is, well, yes, we don't have the resources and we don't really want to basically cause a fuss if there is no fuss to be made. So that, again, aligns with what you've mentioned. Uh, the advice that what we that we've been giving clients is that, number one, um, especially in the context where some of the, the projects that have been put forward to try to kind of bridge this gap to to plug this uh, sort of this this gap um, that is foreseen has actually come from regulator requests. Uh, for example, their sort of financial industry regulators have said, wait, so this is a, we've identified this as a risk for you, mm-hmm. and it might be foreign regulators, for example. Um, what are you doing about it? So that sort of stemmed the, 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 the progress or stemmed the, the project itself or even stemmed them thinking about it. So leaving aside the origin of it, um, they're now saying, okay, fine, we've been asked to do this. We kind of have to do it. We think that it's probably a good thing to do it anyway. Again, it is a risk that has been identified, but we cannot, it is not feasible. We cannot engage vendors, clients, and other 
basically um, importers of of, of, or of our data um, in the UK, we cannot engage them with with sort of a full fledged. Um, very specific negotiation on standard clauses to be put in, analysis of what kind of relationship it is, et cetera. Um, so the advice that we've been giving is definitely paint with a broader brush, but look at it from a, a risk management point of view. What kind of things can you do and you should do in order to, if a regulator were to come, a, a, privacy regulator were to come in the future and say, well, where do you stand on, have you even addressed this, have you, how have you addressed this issue of data transfers, you can show them something that puts you on solid ground. So what I think most people are adapting and what I've seen as a trend in the market is, yes, you do have to put in place standard clauses, that's the easiest way. Uh, get trying to get um, binding corporate rules in is too long and it mm. doesn't make sense because then you have to do it with everyone. But again, it doesn't mean that you have to launch into prolonged negotiations with 300 vendors in the span of six months. Um, yeah, pick off your key. Exactly. Well, it's, it's either pick off a key, but actually identify very clearly, do a very clear analysis as to what is actually in scope and have a very clear methodology for why you think that there are data transfers, important data transfers between the EU and UK. And then with those particular vendors, look at implementing perhaps um, uh, a, um, you know, a, a deemed acceptance approach, where you make all attempts possible to get that signed. You've provided notice. You've said, this I'm, is what I'm, we I'm, I, so. Listeners can't see me smiling because I'm smiling. And the reason <laughs> I'm smiling is because this is GDPR addendums <laughs> mark two, isn't it? So yeah. It's the same issue. Not quite yeah. the same, but yeah. you're right. And I think, I think what's... And it, it, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. it does actually come as a sort of phase two of something that everybody's done maybe a year and a half ago. And now they've kind of having to go back. And again, it's part of the issue of, OK, now we have to bother these people again, again. And, and, and somehow impact our relationship, use up our resources. Um, but it is, I guess, necessary in some cases I've mentioned it is requested by... Yeah, yeah and yes. you, I know that a lot of yeah. your clients are in the financial services business, which is a, uh, um, what, dual regulated and probably more heavily, reg clearly more heavily mm -hmm. regulated mm -hmm. than pure ICO regulation, but also has a much more developed uh, culture around risk and management risks than you get in most companies. It's a much more developed mm -hmm. art, science, whatever you call it, mm -hmm. and people mm -hmm. are are kind of more used to kind of working out the risks are and then exactly. kind of measuring them and weighting them correctly and acting on that and living, you know, it's all that risk appetite. How much risk can we take? We know exactly. we can't get it perfect. Yeah, exactly. And and again, it's always, and I think that that doesn't just apply to responding to various regulator requests no. or trying to figure out how to do this one specific issue tied to Brexit. It's really when dealing with with privacy regulators and the expectation in general, and including of the ICO, is that not that you get it perfect, but that you you put something in that is in good faith, it's documented, and you can basically show that you've done your best in the circumstances. Yeah, and that's I've, really all that can be. And and I'm sure, and I, and I know that in my previous lives in antitrust work, if you could mm -hmm. show that the competition law, the European DG4, whoever's about to fine you a huge amount, that actually you'd actually put in all the procedures, you trained everybody, as if something just went wrong because of a couple of rogue people or by mistake, then actually, you know, you get treated much better than if you just ignored it and said, 
and and then and try to hide your yeah, or kind of yeah. had a two fingers attitude yeah. um, mm. uh, to the regulator. No, understood. I think that makes uh, very good sense. Any final? I think we're going to bring it to a close now. Any final things you like to? I mean, I, I'd like to say thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank Rama. you for having me. Any final advice, or do you want people? If people want to contact you, do you want put your your email address out on the? Yeah, though I think that would be great. We can. Uh, would we love to speak to anybody that um, is looking to strengthen their position with respect to both what will happen after Brexit if they very likely deal and trade with Europe, but in general to be protected also under the current privacy laws here in the UK, just with respect to our own local regulator. I think that both sides of the equation are equally important. We'd love to speak to anyone and we'd love to help um, uh, to be able to put them in a position where, again, they have the transparency necessary, the documentation necessary, and the the sort of privacy by design and structure of their processes, their products that will put them on a safe footing. Because in the end, this is about risk, both both from staying away from fines, but also reputational, as well as just generally from a trade point of view, clients will ask about this, that your own clients will ask about this. So you need to be in a position where you are safe and can justify that you are, from from a regulator, regulatory point of view, um, are in a good place. No, I think that's well made. Okay, so Wana, thanks very much. So Wana's contact details will be in the show notes. Um, and thank you very much for coming along on the show. Thank you. Uh, just to remind everybody, uh, GDPR Now is, is brought to you by This Is DPO, which you can find at thisisdpo.co.uk. Uh, your host for this session was me, Mark Sherwood-Edwards. And thanks very much for listening.